presence in this place and we thank you for who you are. Lord, that you fill this place that's filled with our praises. You fill those praises with your presence. Lord, that you're living and active and moving. You desire a relationship with us. You want to draw us closer to you. You want to make us into the image of who you created us to be. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that as we look to your word here over the next few minutes, that it would become alive, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, that we would understand that it's not just my words that we're hearing, but Lord, that your words would be heard. You would do those things in our lives that only you can do. We thank you for it. We thank you for your presence in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You can be seated this morning. Let our worship team know how much you appreciate them leading us in worship this morning. If you want to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2. This is week 4 out of 11 of our series on the book of James. And I hope that you've been participating in the reading plan with us. I encourage you, uh, if you're on social media at all, to get on Facebook or Instagram and share some of those things. We have a post every week, and several of our leaders have been sharing different devotionals from the reading that week. We'd love for you to share what God's speaking to you or ask questions about what you're reading. We've had some good conversations and interaction on those pages. We'd love to see even more of that. So, so grab the reading guide and check that out. We spoke in week one about trials and tribulations that we all are going to face that we will experience in our lives. That's right. Week two, we talked about being doers of God's word and not hearers only. And uh, in that uh, second part of chapter one, when, we, when he began talking about that, he listed several different things. There's lots of different areas of our lives in which we can be doers and not hearers only. Last week, we looked at one of those specific areas that he dealt on quite a bit, which is the area of favoritism and prejudice. Mm -hmm. And today, we're looking at the second half of James chapter 2 and a passage of Scripture that many people consider to be the main foundational idea of the entire book of James, that faith cannot really exist without works, that if you don't put your faith into action, that it's, it's just not a valid faith. And so we're going to read from James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. It says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our, Abraham, our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. God, I pray that as we uh, dig into this word that you have for us today, that it would become alive in us. 
And Lord, it would change us. And we thank you for it in your name. Amen. There are things that just don't work without other things. Right? Like a zebra without stripes. It just doesn't work. I'm not sure if that makes it a white horse or a black horse. I'm not sure which color the stripes are. I think they're black stripes on a white horse. I don't know. But a zebra without stripes doesn't work. A Dalmatian without its spots just doesn't work. Superman without his cape. Gumby without Pokey. Ross without Rachel. Star Wars without a Jedi Knight. Fall without football. And a Wyoming summer without a snowy day in June, right? <laughs> if you take away that one thing, it's just not the same. And the same goes for faith without works. James says that faith without works is dead. And this really is not an entirely new idea. I shared last week that we, not, not myself or this church, but we have taken the book of James, and, and as we have all scripture, and we've divided it into chapters and into verses and all those kinds of things. But we have to remember that this is really all one letter that's being written to Christians that are scattered uh, abroad in different places. And so we look at what, uh, what we're looking at today is basically a continuation of what James has been talking about since chapter 1 of being doers of the word. We're, we're, we're seeing a continuation of this. He is saying, if we're really doers of the word, then anger shouldn't be controlling our lives. If we're doers of the word, then our tongues are not raging out of control. If we're doers of the word, then we're concerned about people that are less fortunate and exploited members of society. If we're really doers of the word, we don't show favoritism or prejudice. And then he gets to the verses where we are today, and he basically summarizes all the things that he said to this point and, uh, and that he's been talking about. And he says that if we're really doers of the word and not hearers only, then our faith should be noticeable because we've put it into action. Genuine faith is lived out in our actions and our words. It's lived out in how we treat people. It's lived out in our business transactions and in every area of our lives. And if it's not, then James' point is very clear. If our faith isn't lived out in every area of our lives, then maybe it's not a real faith. Now, I want to be clear with you about what James is not saying because this is a very uh, debated passage of Scripture. It's one that's talked about quite a bit because it seems, if you're not careful in how you read it, and we read all scripture in, in context, and so you don't ever take just one verse and, and base anything on that. You look at the whole context of what's being said and in this chapter, in these verses, in this book, and that's why we started today in, in James 1 and went through. Because it would appear to some people that James was contradicting some of the things that Paul says about how we're saved by faith, And we as a church teach that it's by faith alone that we're saved. And so James is saying things like it's, faith by itself isn't enough, that you've got to do something more. But I want to be clear with you about what James is not saying, because what he's not saying is just as important as what he is saying. He's not saying that good works are necessary for you to be saved. One thing that sets us apart from other religions is that we teach that we're saved through grace, by faith alone. And that's the, the reality of the situation. We look at what Paul says in Titus 3.5. It's up on the screens for you. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. So what is James saying? He's not saying that we need these things to be saved. He's saying that faith by itself isn't enough. What is he saying? He's saying we, you know, we had nothing to do with our salvation. Jesus did everything he needed to do to save you on the cross. That's why from the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. The work was done. There's nothing that we have to do as it pertains to our salvation. We can't earn it. We can't do enough good things to make up for the life of sin that we all have lived. But now that I've made this decision that I'm a Christ follower, some things have to change. It's not that we do certain things to earn it. It's not that we have to do enough good things to, to qualify it's that now that we have experienced a relationship with Christ, we should see people differently. We don't see them any longer as people that we can use and step on to get what we want, as just people, random people out there, and we only focus and concern ourselves with ourselves. We see people as people who Christ died for. Suddenly they're more valuable, and I want to love them, and I want to serve them. Suddenly I realize that God created me, and he has a plan and a purpose for my life. And so I realize that I don't just live for myself any longer. And because of my love for God, I do things that I didn't do before. Not to earn salvation, but because salvation has changed me. Authentic faith changes us. We talked last week about several weeks, for the last several weeks, about how the book of James parallels and mirrors the teachings of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount in other places, and we look at Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20, Jesus said this, Be on guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire so you'll recognize them by their fruit. John 15, verse 5 through 8, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them in the fire, and they're burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It's clear that the life of someone who has an authentic, genuine faith is going to be a life that produces fruit in keeping with that faith. It's not that we have to produce fruit in order to earn our faith or to earn our salvation. Jesus did everything that needs to be done, but when we receive that salvation experience. When we begin a relationship with Christ, our lives change. There's fruit that's produced that wasn't there before. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. He says this, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry... And you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, 
and he did not look after me. Something that changes in the life of someone that has a genuine faith. And today, I want to look with you at the five kinds of faith that James discusses in these verses that we read. And the first of those is a useless faith. Verse 15, James gives the example of someone poorly clothed and lacking food. Now, when he says poorly clothed, it doesn't mean that they just wear clothes that you wouldn't want to wear. They're wearing Walmart clothes. Nothing wrong with Walmart clothes. I wear Walmart clothes. But James isn't just saying there's someone here that's not dressed trendy and fashionable. He's talking about a person that is naked and starving. In this example, the person tells them to go and be blessed. Basically, best of luck to you but they do nothing to help. Can you imagine how hollow those words are to someone that's truly in need? Mm -hmm. James is telling us that faith without works is like compassionate words without compassionate action. It's pretty hollow. It would be like you pulling out of church on a cold Wyoming summer day. <laughs> Snow has just began to fall on June 23rd. And you see a family stopped on the side of the road, stranded without gas. And you stop and they're standing there and they tell you that they just need a ride to get some gas because it's too cold to walk to the store. And you stop for a moment. You lament with them, wow, what a terrible place to be. And you tell them, God bless you though. God is with you. I'm going to pray and maybe he'll send somebody to help you. Bye, have a good one. You drive off. When you're right there, you could have taken <laughs> James asks the question, and it deserves an answer. It's a pretty obvious answer. What good is that kind of faith? It's a useless faith. There's two ways that faith without works is useless. Number one, that kind of faith is useless to the person that's in need. The person in need misses out on ministry and compassion from somebody that had it within their power to give it. And imagine what that person in need thinks about the faith of that person. I want nothing to do with it. Too often that's the faith that our world has seen on display. The second way that faith without works is useless is useless to the person that had the opportunity to do something good and didn't do it. That person misses out on an opportunity to be used by God and to bless others. God's purpose in blessing us is not to enslave us to the blessings that he gives us, but he has, he has done it in order for us to discover how to live an open-handed life that blesses other people. God wants to bless you so that you can in turn be a blessing to others around you so that you can know how good God is so that they can see how good God is in you and they can experience it firsthand for themselves. When faith is not moving, we end up becoming spiritually constipated. Now there's a mental picture for you this morning. <laughs> Since we're talking about constipation, we'll talk about diets that don't work. Diets are kind of like faith. If you don't exercise them, if you don't put them into practice, they're not going to work. If any of you have ever struggled to lose weight, you can sympathize with the French king, William the Conqueror, who lived almost a thousand years ago. He apparently got so fat that he had trouble staying on his horse. Poor horse. He decided to lock himself in his room and try to do something about it. And so he decided that while he was locked in his room, he would consume nothing but alcohol. Oh, that really helped. 
Now, before everyone gets excited, as I'm sure this would be a popular diet, you should know that it didn't work very well for the king. Eventually, after the diet not working, he got out, back out on his horse and he fell off and he died. And not only did he fall off his horse and he died, but he was so obese that he couldn't fit in his stone coffin and they just kind of did the best they could, but his body had began to sink and it filled up the whole place where his funeral was with a, with a very uh, peculiar stench. The most embarrassing moment of American obesity may have been in 1903 when President Taft, who weighed 355 pounds and was the heaviest American president, got stuck in the White House bathtub. <laughs> After that moment, he vowed to lose weight, but I'm not sure that he actually accomplished that either. There's all kinds of, of crazy diet plans that, that don't work. Some of you may remember vision dieter glasses. There were glasses that you would put on that were designed for you to wear them and they would make food less appealing. You don't know about them today because they don't work very well. And then there was the mini fork system that was designed to help people take smaller bites. The only problem was if you just take more smaller bites, it doesn't change anything. Elvis, he was a fan of his peanut butter banana deep fried sandwiches. There's a way to gain weight for you if you want. But instead of kicking that habit, he decided to try the Sleeping Beauty diet. He was heavily sedated for seven days and hoped to wake up a thinner king. Didn't really work for him either. Thing is, there's many people that want to lose weight, but there's few people that want to make the changes that are necessary to lose weight. But in order to change, something in you has to change. And the same thing is true in life, and the same thing is true with our faith. If you have a genuine faith, then something has to change, or that faith won't work. It's a useless faith. You see, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. The second thing that James talks about when it comes to faith is he talks about a faith that cannot save. James has interjected an antagonist into the argument. It was something they would do long ago. Instead of singling out one person, instead of saying, you know, Ron may say, blah, blah, blah. He just makes up a fictitious, makes up a fictitious uh, antagonist and uh, injects them into the argument. If, if, if James is being passive-aggressive, maybe there is a person that does this and, uh, and he's giving an example of something that's actually happening. We don't know if that's the case or not. But he, he creates this fictitious antagonist and brings them into the argument. And James destroys the argument of the antagonist through biblical examples. The antagonist is saying that faith and works are completely separate. He's saying the exact opposite of what James is saying. If you have faith, that's all you need. You don't have to do anything else. And James says, okay, if that's true, then how do I see your faith? Show me your faith. I can show you my faith that's evident because of the things that I do, but how are you going to show me your faith? Where is your fruit? He's getting to the heart of the issue that there's people that have convinced themselves that they can just think the right things or say the right things and that they've done all that needs to be done. Notice in verse 14, he says, what good is it if someone says that they have faith? He doesn't say what good is it if someone has faith. He says, what good is it if someone says they have faith? Mm -hmm. But they don't show it in the things that they do. I think this is particularly important to those of us that live in America because we are a so-called Christian nation. All kinds of people in our, in our country will claim to be Christians, but the problem is that we see very few people that actually live like Christ. 
So what happens is that people say, there's no difference between my life and yours. I don't need that. If that's what being a Christian is all about, then I want nothing to do with it. But the problem is these people haven't seen a true demonstration of what it means to be a Christ follower. They haven't seen faith in action. All they've seen is intellectual arguments. All they've seen is, is someone beating them up with the Bible and not living out the Bible. That's the very reason that James challenges the validity of a faith that does nothing. So James gets really clear and he gets really blunt here. And he writes that if you don't have some kind of change in your life, if the faith that you claim to have doesn't produce change in your life, then you probably don't have Jesus in your life at all. In the Greek language, when something is mentioned more than once, there's a clear emphasis on it. And so James tells us five times in this passage of Scripture that faith without works is not a saving faith. He wanted to make himself clear. Five times between verse 14 and 26, he tells us that an inactive faith is not a saving faith. He asks some rhetorical questions where the answer is obvious. He says, what good is it? What good is it? It's no good at all. He asks, can such a faith save him, that antagonist? No. That kind of faith is not a saving faith. An exclusively intellectual approach to correct doctrine is not salvation. We can know the Bible front and back. We can use it to beat people up and have no love for people in our hearts. And for all that knowledge, it'll do us no good because that's not a saving faith. Simply recognizing the right things about God does not amount to a saving faith. James says even the demons believe that there's a God and they shudder. The demons fear God. There's demons that probably have better theology than people in some churches but it's not a saving theology. If all you have is knowledge and theology and that's it, then that's not salvation. What James is saying is that there are some people who claim to have faith. They're connected to a community of faith. They're supporters of faith. And if you look at the car, they have the Christian fish symbol on their car and a, and a Christian bumper sticker, follow me to my church. If you look at their Facebook, they have links to their YouTube religious clips and things that they like. They sing songs about Jesus, but these people don't love God, and they don't love other people, and therefore they're not Christians. In our lives today, faith without works cannot save you. You're simply saying that you're a Christian with no love for God that leads to love for other people means that you should probably just stop calling yourself a Christian because you may not be one. It requires a relationship with God that changes us, not just knowledge and information or a set of facts. It's more than that. It's easy to play the part and put on a good show. It's easy to have the, the outward appearance of everything being in order, but it's not easy to have a heart that loves Jesus and love others. That only comes through a heart that's been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's easy when you grow up in church and you know how to speak the language and you can fool a lot of people, but you won't fool God with a faith that isn't genuine. James talked about a useless faith. He talked about a faith that cannot save. And then he talked about an ineffective faith. Do you know that all the commands of God found in Scripture are about God inviting you to a deeper life with Him? So many times we approach the commands of God like it's a list of rules of things we can't break. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. It's not that at all. It's an invitation to the richest, most 
fulfilling life with him. He isn't trying to take anything away from you or to keep you from something good. You are created for more, and God's inviting you to a life of, of, of abundance and a life of more. But if you don't put your faith into action, you're settling for less. You're ineffective. You're like a car without gas. Now, there's a lot of things that a car can do, but a car was created for one purpose, to take you from one place to another. And so you can sit in your car without gas, and you can listen to the radio, but that's an expensive boombox. You can get in your car to shelter you from the rain, and I know tents are expensive, but a car is a really expensive tent if that's the only purpose that it serves. It's ineffective if that's what you use it for. If you don't fill it up with fuel and get it on the road, then you're missing out on the entire purpose. Has anyone ever had the experience of trying to convince a child that a swimming pool is awesome? You got to get in. Come on, just jump in. It's going to be great. And you're, you're sitting there trying to, to rationalize why the pool is a good experience and why they should get in. And all the time, the child is scared and they're nervous and they're not willing to jump in the water. And until you get into the water, you're never going to understand the joy of swimming. At the same time, a swimming pool isn't effective until you use it, until you get in and use it. Faith isn't effective without you using it either. God's invitation for you and for me isn't just to quit doing something or stop thinking about that thing or stop acting like that. We have to stop thinking of it as God wants us to stop having fun. You're not grounded from life now that you're a Christ follower. God's invitation is to come and enjoy the life that God has and makes available to you, a life that surpasses any other life that's available apart from him. But it's ineffective if it's not put to use. The next faith that James talks about was a dead faith. This is a strong statement that James makes twice in this passage. Not only is faith without works inoperative, it's completely dead. Do you know what something that's dead does? Absolutely nothing. I told first service, unless it's a dead elk in my freezer. <laughs> Do you know what dead faith does? <clears throat> nothing. Not even as much as the dead elk in my freezer. It does nothing. Charles Spurgeon, he had a great thing that he would say about this passage of scripture and about this idea of faith and works. He said that a tree that's been planted into the ground, now the source of life to that tree is the root. Whether it has apples on it or not, the apples would not give life to it, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there's no bud, and when the summer comes, there's no leafing and no fruit bearing, and then the next year and the next, it stands without bud or blossom, no leaf or fruit, you would say it's dead, and you are correct. It is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, but the absence of leaves are proof that it's dead. So too is it with the one who professes to have faith, but has no works. If there is life, then that life must produce fruit. I love that argument. It's not the fruit that makes the tree alive. It's not our works. It's not the things that we do that cause us to attain salvation or gives life to our faith, but a faith that is alive is going to be followed by action. It's going to be seen. It's going to be evident. It's going to be something that's visible. Jesus said, the one who abides in me will bear much fruit. We aren't saved by the fruit of our lives or the things that we do, but we're saved 
to produce fruit in our lives. Death, dead faith is a faith that you profess, but you don't possess. Dead faith causes other people to say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be one. Christ doesn't call us to a dead faith. He calls us to a life to the fullest. Finally, James talks about a demonstrated faith. James tells us that in contrast to those that have a useless faith or a faith that cannot save, an ineffective faith or a dead faith, there are others that have a demonstrated faith. While a dead faith has no power, a demonstrated faith has no limits to its potential. The only faith is the faith that works. Scriptures are clear about that. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of faith. And there's these great men and women who are listed there because of their great faith. And there's a phrase in that chapter that's repeated 14 times. We already talked about how in Greek the repetition of something is to give it emphasis. And there's the exact same phrase in Hebrews chapter 11. 14 times it's repeated. It's an intentional emphasis. In Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, the phrase by faith is mentioned 14 times. By faith, by faith, by faith. But you know what that phrase by faith is followed by each time? By faith is followed by the action that the person demonstrated their faith with. And so it says things like, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, Noah in holy fear built an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. And it goes on 14 times. It lists people that demonstrated their faith by their actions. And James here, which was written before Hebrews chapter 11, I think the author of Hebrews might have seen what James did in James chapter 2 and said, we'll do more of that. That's really good. James has his own mini hall of faith here. He just gives two examples. One is pretty obvious and one is kind of surprising. The first example he gives is the example of Abraham. This is an example of faith that's used many times in the Bible. It's not a surprise. Most people are familiar with it. Abraham, he's a Jew. Not only is he a Jew, he's a male. Not only is he a male Jew, but he's the father of our faith. But I love that the Bible shares the good and the bad. We get to see all of Abraham's life because there's no person that's just faith-filled every day. Abraham blew it a couple times along the way. Originally, God said, I want you to move from where you are, go to a place I'm going to show you. I want you to step out in faith and follow me. And, and Abraham obeyed God. And it was credited to him as faith. By faith, he left where he was and went to another place. But along the way, he had some crisis of faith, like we're prone to have. There were some moments where people looked at his wife and he said, that's not my wife, that's my sister. You can have her. But that didn't bode well for the marriage. I don't know why I can't have a son. some moments along the way where he doubted that God was going to fulfill the promise and so he said maybe I need to take the handmaiden and help God out a little bit there's some crisis of his faith but what we see the example that James gives of Abraham we see Abraham when he's got the promise when he's got his son Isaac and God says I want you to put him on the altar from this moment Abraham operates in faith and we don't ever see him in his life return to the crisis of faith that he had early on. From this moment, he was fully convinced that God was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do to the point that Abraham acted on his faith. What did he do? He took his son up the mountain. That was his first step of faith. 
God said, sacrifice him. He said, come on, son, let's go. They went up the mountain. They got to the top of the mountain. Abraham said, God's going to provide. This is the son of the promise. God's going to provide. But when they got there, he didn't see immediately. So what did he do? He stepped in faith again. And he put his son on the altar. He said, God's going to provide. There were times in his life where he acted outside of faith. But we see Abraham later in life begin to learn the lesson that faith has to be put into action. When it came to his son, he put faith into action. He was fully trusting God for the promise in faith. The other example that James gives us is the example of Rahab. This is one that's not very common. Abraham was a Jew. He's a male. He's the father of faith. Rahab was a Gentile. She's a female. And she's a prostitute in Jericho. It's not someone that comes to the top of your list of people of faith. Not only is James covering all the bases here, he's showing something very important. Rahab lived a life that no one would have dreamed of. She had likely been used and abused, and women in that culture were treated generally very poorly. So imagine how a woman like Rahab must have been treated. Rahab desperately needed a new beginning. She heard of a God that was stronger than the walls on which her house was built, and she put her faith in that God. We see it in action. Just a, a tiny little step of faith. You could overlook it in the story. You could, you could read through the story really quick and you could miss the faith of Rahab. But it's incredible. All she did was believe God and hide the spies and send them out another direction. We don't have a lot of record of what Rahab said, but we just have one little tiny thing that she said. She hid them and she said, remember me when God gives you the city. She trusted not only that God was stronger than the walls that her house were built on, she trusted God not only enough to hide the spies and send them off protected from those that were looking for them, she trusted God enough to, to verbalize it and say, you know what, remember me when God gives you this city. Her faith was put into action. She found herself in the lineage of Jesus himself. That's who God chose not only to use to bring about his promise to the children of Israel, but it's who God chose to use for his son to be born. The application for us is that regardless of who we are or what our background is, God is looking for us to demonstrate our faith by putting it into action in our lives. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith. We don't have to go out and be like Abraham. Sometimes we just have a tiny little bit of faith. A mustard seed of faith is enough to move mountains. But when that faith is put into action, it produces fruit in our lives. God wants us to demonstrate our faith by putting it into action. He wants us to live out our faith. We should be more loving as we grow in Christ. We should be more faithful as we grow in Christ. We should be more selfless as we grow in Christ. We should be more open to giving and serving and loving other people. Those things, they don't happen overnight. It happens through time. God's not looking for perfection perfection in our lives. He's looking for progress. He wants to see that we're becoming more and more like him. He's working on us. He's chipping away those areas of our lives, but he wants to see our faith in action. Faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. Our faith is demonstrated by the fruit that our lives produce. 
want to end with this. There's a story told of a town where the residents are ducks. And every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their houses and they waddle down Main Street to church. They waddle into the sanctuary and they squat each in their proper pews. The duck choir waddles in and takes its place. And then the duck minister comes forward and he opens the duck Bible and he reads to them, Ducks, he says, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you in. You have wings. God has given you wings. You can fly like birds. And all the ducks shout, Amen. And then they gather their things and they waddle home, unchanged by what they've heard. <laughs> Some of us keep waddling like ducks when God's given us wings. We're willing to say amen. We're willing to say that we believe with our lips, but our lives don't match our lips. There's a problem. It's time to put our faith to work. I'm not preaching this message because I have a list of things that I want you to do. There's not a list of if you'll just show up on Saturday and help us hand out some flyers. If you put one of these in your yard, you work at the nursery once a month. We need another van driver. If you'll drive the van once a month, then you're good. You're, you're on your way to heaven. That's not what this is about. What I love about preaching through an entire book is that I don't, I don't pick what's next. God does. It's not a list of things you have to do. It's just a lifestyle that you live. It's not certain information that you need to know that contains everything that needs to be done for your salvation. It's only through a relationship with Him that we receive salvation. But here's some questions that we should all ask because the Bible says that we should evaluate our lives and our hearts. If God has saved me, if He extended His grace to me, if He put His Holy Spirit inside of me, has it changed me? Has it changed me at all? Am I more gracious? Am I learning to love and to give and to serve? Do I value the things of the Lord and the time spent with Him more than I used to? Do I see my life as ministry all the time, no matter where I'm at? These are the fruits that are produced in our lives by the work of God. When you evaluate yourself, you can be honest because no one else can do that for you. Has your life changed? Are you any different? If you can say that you absolutely are, that your life has changed, that your values and your actions are different, that's great. But if you can't say that, then you need to make sure that you're really having a genuine faith this morning, that your life really matches the things that you say that you believe, that, that you don't just confess it with your mouth. The Bible doesn't say we're saved through confessing with our mouth. He says if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God has saved you, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you're saved. Confessing with our mouth is a step, but believing in our heart is what begins to change us. Some people, after making that decision, confessing with their mouth and believing in their heart, they make a decision to be baptized. And we'd love for you to be baptized. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, that's it's not something that saves us. We don't get to heaven through baptism. Salvation's all you need, but it's an outward sign of saying, you know what, God's done something on the inside, and I want to let people know. Serving 
There's lots of ways and areas and places that you can serve. Many of you serve in our community. You serve through the soup kitchen or through Family Promise or incredible organizations in our community. That's so valuable. It's an incredible way to serve and put your faith on display. Some of you serve within the church, and there's opportunities to serve within the church. We have an app called Vomo. There's lots of opportunities on there where you can sign up. We had today someone driving the van to pick people up for the very first time. We're beginning that this Sunday. It's going to happen every week. We'd love to have a driver for every week of the month so it's not the same person. There's mega sports camp signs. There's lots of things. There's not a certain list. It's just that when your life changes, things on the outside change. I used to tell teenagers as a youth pastor, if you get saved, if God changes your life and your parents can't tell the difference, then come back to this altar until it does. It should make a difference. People around you should be able to tell. The people that you work with, the people that you're closest with, they should see there's something different. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to go through trials and temptations. I love that he started this book with that. A faith that works, being doers of the word and not hearers only doesn't mean we're not going to have tough times it just means we respond differently in the face of those things that's right would you pray with me today heavenly father we thank you for who you are we thank you that you love us enough that you sent your son to die for us while we were still far away while we were still in sin and ugly and dirty but lord you believed that through a relationship with jesus christ that many could be saved lord you give us that opportunity God, I pray that we would examine our hearts and our lives today to ensure that we have a genuine faith, that it's not just lip service, that it's a life that matches the things that we say that we believe. Lord, I pray that every person here today would evaluate their own lives. Lord, not from a legalistic standpoint of have I done enough, we can never do enough. It's not through the things that we do that we're saved, but they would evaluate their lives and say, am I growing? Am I changed? Is there fruit in my life that reflects who I say that God is to me? Lord, that we would live a life of genuine faith for the world to see, that they would see something different. They would desire that in their lives. We repent, God, for the times that we have lived a weak faith, that our faith hasn't been evident in in our actions, in our words, in our business transactions, in all the things that we do. God, I pray that we would live a genuine faith that changes us and changes the way that we do life. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. If you're here and you came in today and you weren't in a right relationship with Christ, maybe you came in here knowing all the information. You knew a lot about God. So do the demons. They know God and they fear, but they don't have a saving faith. Today, if you came in here without a saving faith, there's no reason that you should leave here without it. Today, I want to give you that opportunity. I'm going to invite everyone here to pray a simple prayer with us. We said it earlier, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then slowly, your life's going to begin to change and there's going to be fruit of that decision in your life. Today, I want to give you that opportunity. I'm going to invite everyone here to pray this prayer along with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. Today, I accept Jesus Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Savior. I believe that when he died on that cross, 
died for my sin. And today I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you an opportunity. If you prayed that prayer today, and you know that you came in here and you weren't in a right relationship with God, or maybe you had been at one time, but you walked away from it, and today you're saying, I want a saving faith that I could put into action. You prayed that prayer. Would you just slip your hand up and say, today I made Jesus the Lord of my life. We had several in the first service. I'd love to give you that opportunity in the service as well. Is there anyone today? I prayed that prayer. I made Jesus the Lord of my life. You can just slip your hand up and write back down. Awesome. Would you look right this way? I'm going to ask Jesse to lead us in this song, and I just want you to hear from God. I want you to hear his voice and whatever it is that he would speak to you today. We're not going to drag this out or, or belabor this. I want us just to take a moment because he can speak to us. Maybe there's areas of your life that he's continuing to work on, things that don't belong. Maybe there's some areas of your life that he's calling you to, and they scare you to death, but it's a step of faith that he's asking you to take. Maybe it's being baptized. Maybe it's sharing what God's done in your life with a coworker around you. Whatever it is, would you listen to his voice today and allow him to speak to you in whatever way that he will? Just take a moment to record.